Net-a-Porter presents The Incredible Women Podcast, Series 5, The Rule Breakers. And what are you doing after this today? I have to finish my thesis, actually. So oh. I'm actually working on this really exciting thesis project. So um, it's looking at greenwash in advertising and how to create a classification system. I'm hoping creates the difference of some kind, but, you know, we'll see. Welcome to the new series of The Incredible Women Podcast. This season, we are talking to women who are breaking the rules and crushing boundaries. Consider them radicals or mavericks and prepare to be inspired by their journeys. I'm Kay Barron, and I'm thrilled to be joined by entrepreneur, ecologist, writer and model Zinnia Kumar. I think that the title Rule Breaker was made for Zinnia, as this incredible woman has made kicking down barriers something of a signature move. The first South Asian model to cover Vogue Australia in its 63-year history she challenges the fashion industry's ideals and is now leading the way for a new generation of Indian talent. Zinni describes herself as having a long-term commitment and passion for humanitarianism, leadership, research, ecology, sustainability, authentic representation, deconstructing beauty ideals and stigmatising narratives in fashion and beyond. And yet that only seems to scratch the surface of what she has achieved so far and what her goals are. Welcome, Zinnia. I am delighted you're joining me today. How are you? Amazing. Thanks for having me, Kay. First of all, we clearly consider you to be a rule breaker, but what does that mean to you and do you consider yourself one? Definitely, yes, I consider myself one. But what it means to me, I guess, kind of goes into my background. So like, it makes sense when I tell you, you know, both my greatest challenge and my greatest gift was my background. So the community I grew up in Sydney was has a lot of intergenerational trauma. So growing up, I experienced there was a lot of like drug, alcohol and domestic abuse. I'm not going to be a victim of my circumstance. So, um, you know, I was determined to get into uni and being the first in my family to go. So the main reason was I just wanted to get out of the community because I was like, you know what, I'm not going to die here. I attended what was ranked the lowest ranked school in the state. I remember having imposter syndrome. So this was like, I remember going to school, to uni, I mean, and... I was so ashamed of where I'd come from. So I wouldn't tell anyone where I was from. That was like my first battle in life was just trying to get over the stigma of who I was and where I'd come from. You've also been very open in the past about the difficulties you've personally encountered in the fashion industry in terms of representation. Can you tell us about your experiences and in your time as a model, have you seen any changes for the better? So there's a few different ways I was going to go around this question. So, I mean... I have all day. All right, cool. <laughs> this is great. Um, okay, I guess the best way around this is... Well, I guess I'll start off with something that I felt very passionate about. So in Australia, since like 2017, I felt it was really wrong that there was no dark-skinned Indigenous Australian representation on like covers or campaigns or magazines or anything like that in Australia. So it was something I personally felt, even though I'm not Indigenous Australian, it was just something I just felt so passionate about. And I kind of started campaigning for Indigenous Australian representation because I couldn't understand living in a country where this is their land and we don't even acknowledge them. So, And did you do that when you started modelling? I started, this was like a year after I started modelling. So it was kind of like I just got, I mean, I'd quit modeling at that point briefly. And I was like, you know what? I am going to be- go and become an anarchist and like, like take down the system. So it was kind of like I was just campaigning for a load of different things. And one of the things that I felt really passionate about was representation. 
And so I kind of like kept campaigning for this. And, you know, after BLM in 2020, I felt like more people started listening into this conversation. And when I started to represent statistics and stats and everything kind of from like a black and white perspective of just showing this is what's happening, this is what needs to happen, I realized um, a lot more people were getting involved in it. 30% of Australia is people of color, which is I think the largest population in a Western country and no one would see anything. All you would see was kind of like blonde haired, blue eyed models on every single cover. And you'd be like, why is this happening? And so I kind of like pulled up Vogue Australia. They started a conversation with me. We kind of really started working on it properly. And um, I joined their Vogue Values Diversity Council. And from there, I really started to push for these minority ethnic groups that kind of would represent a representation of Australia, ethnically speaking. And I'd kind of, I don't know, I just sort of felt like it was important to be an ally to just all underrepresented minorities at the time. So, and while I worked for them, I pushed for the cover to have Roseanne Park, who's from Blackpink, who's yep. a, um, a Korean Australian. I had Priyanka Chopra put on the cover as well. And Indigenous Australian model Magnolia Maymuru as well, which was a really big deal for me because it was kind of like the thing I'd been pushing for for so long. And by the end of the year, Vogue Australia was the most ethnically inclusive and demographically representative of all the Vogues. And it was second only to Vogue India in terms of South Asian representation. So that was kind of like a really big deal for me to be able to like push forward and really see these changes happen. But not just from like one representative group or the other. It was kind of like all across the board. In terms of like South Asian representation, this region and diaspora makes up 2.1 billion people or 25% of the world's population, which wow. is huge, huge. Yep. which is huge. And South Asians in the UK make up 6% of the British population, which is the single largest minority. And of that 3.5% are just Indians. The second major group outside of South Asians in the UK are Black Britons, and they make up 3.5% of the population. And how do you find it in terms of your agency? And so when you design with an agency, and how did you find it to get the jobs that you wanted at the beginning and how that compares to now? We're kind of like the last group that people think about in terms of when they're doing casting and that kind of thing. And what's happened is having just one slot per job and slot that may or may not exist kind of created this environment of competition, jealousy and envy amongst South Asian models where they saw each other as competition. But, you know, um, what's really nice is like the new generation now realizes that it's like a rigged system against them and that they're just kind of like an optional tick box. And, you know, for all the South Asian models I've spoken with, we kind of have like this little community now, which is really nice. And we have this level of solidarity because no matter whatever level we're all on, we've all had the similar negative experiences of being excluded based on our race and being told that. Um, and this is really sad when you think about the hundreds of South Asian models that come from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, but also America, the UK, and they all go to castings for a particular job. And, you know, I've been to these castings and I've seen them at show castings and we're like standing there, there's hundreds of us, and we all know none of us are going to get picked. Or and one. Or one, but usually that one person gets dropped at the last minute or something like that. So I think that's kind of like 
really limited our visibility and access in fashion. And how that affected me personally was I often found I had to be, I had to have like a level of brilliance to make myself stand out in a completely different way. And one of the ways is speaking for me. By public speaking, I can kind of like break down those barriers and make people be like, hang on a minute, we have to listen to this girl. Or if I'm doing another project or if I'm kind of doing an interview or a podcast or like working on some creative stuff behind the scenes, it's the only way we can kind of get access. Like I still, I manage actually six other South Asian talent as well through my company. I was going to get to that next, yeah. You know, we still get these briefs saying, you know, sorry, blah, blah has been dropped because they've decided to go with a black model. And so we're kind of like the interchangeable, disposable, grape space, ethnic diversity tick box, which no one really notices or care about. And it means at any point in time, there's only like 10 South Asian models in the world that people know about. And yeah, it just makes me wonder where is, what is the source of the systemic glass ceiling and how do you end it? Because even when I was doing research about you, you're mentioned as a model always secondary to science first and even a lot of the way that things are written it's like oh my god she's a female scientist you know it's still there's so much kind of like backward um reporting in the media mm. and and now that I think about it which I hadn't noticed when I was reading it about the model side of it but you're right it's you've cut through because you're something else yes and, that's, and it's it's sort of like I've not just cut through. So often at times, I guess I also get questioned, oh, what, are you really a scientist? I'm like, yes, my, I've got a hundred citations on my research papers. Yes, I've kind of gone to Oxford. Like, you know, these kind of, like I have to always prove it every time. So there's always these layers of proving. So I often feel like, you know, at the beginning of my career, by sh- talking about the science element of things, it just meant people would take me seriously. And also, so you, you'll baffle them straight away too. Yeah, it kind of like mind boggles them. Yeah. But, you know, it, it hasn't always gone well. Like I remember I had a casting once for like um, a major publication and I, it was like an interrogation. Like the the lady who was doing the casting was like, why are you even in fashion? Like why? Like, and I was like, uh, like I, I it was a bit mind boggled because I was like, I don't understand why she's asking me whether I'm qualified or not to be in fashion because I'm a scientist. Like, don't you just model? Like, you know, yeah. it's kind of like you just turn up, right? So it was sort of like... Um, it kind of also created another layer of duality of identity where I had to kind of keep this professional layer just to get into the room. It was like the thing I would use and still use to this day to get into the room because if I can blab my way in, which is kind of what I still do, someone will let me in the room. And I know that like, even if there's like a 1% chance of something happening, I'll be like, let's try it. Well, somebody was going to want to listen. Well, someone's going to have to listen yeah. because I won't shut up about it, right? But, but also you're very compelling. Like, yes. Yeah, you're a good storyteller as well, which is which is a complete... I try planet. to like show the facts and I feel like the facts speak for themselves. I do feel like I've always had to have this professional other identity in order to be taken seriously in fashion. So yeah. with the dotted line, because I do feel like that's... Well, tell me about it first and then I was going to ask the question about what you then tell the people that you're representing. It started as a production and advertising company, which we created because we realized that we needed more space for creatives of color. So we started doing these projects with like photographers, makeup artists, stylists of all different races. And it was nice because for the first time when we actually started it in Australia, it was the first time that there was actually 
productions happening with people of different races. And it's kind of grown into an advertising and talent studio. I've started it in stealth and I haven't really like advertised about it yet, but I'm going to launch it soon. I'm going to launch (laughs) it soon uh, publicly. But um, we work as a brand and talent agency to cultivate culturally defining content with a, a socially impactful quality about it. Because I feel like a lot of identity is so intertwined with self-esteem and social belonging. And what we try to do is kind of create this ecosystem where through visibility, we can kind of create community identity, connection and belonging. Um, And so my business partners and I currently support six South Asian and Southeast Asian talent. So we also have a Pacific Islander girl too. So we kind of, it's not just about South Asian people, but it's just that the people we've connected with have been South Asian. Are they all models too? No, they're not oh, all models. Okay. So we have photographers, uh, stylists as well, um, and makeup artists, um, and models as well. Yeah. Um, and what we do is like we kind of provide like this 24-hour support, crisis management, mentorship, full industry development, navigation, and we kind of remove as many glass ceilings as we can. It's all about developing each person's personal interests and talent as well, like singing, poetry, acting, and that kind of thing. One thing that we really pride ourselves on is we never let our talent who are already from marginalized communities feel like a token or less than, even when they have these awful experiences on set, which they still do to this day. You know, to see their professional and personal progress even now with every single element of that they do is kind of really amazing because you see their resilience, how they're making it through this industry. The aim of it is to increase representation as a whole, but also create a support network. Going back to like mental health issues and how you protect yourself, because obviously when you go into this, you didn't have a mentor like you yeah. are for this talent. But how did you protect yourself? And how did you not throw your hat in about 800 times? You know what it was? Because of my background and where I'd come from, I kind of developed like this level of resilience. I would always keep this really optimistic perspective, even when everything was going to absolute like trash. And that's what really helped me continue and push through everything. Even when like, even to this day, like when I know something's like impossible, I'd be like, no, it's possible. Maybe there's a level of delusion in what I do, but uh, I think- um, A healthy amount. A a healthy amount. So I think there's a fine line between delusion and insanity. And I think I cross, I have crossed that many, many times. So that's what keeps me going. And the reason I had a mental health crisis was because I ended up not having any money. So that made me homeless. And then being homeless meant I had to kind of like postpone uni. So it's kind of like all of these layers which are interconnected. But you know, that story is not just unique to me. That story is like the story of hundreds of models every single day. And then when you have models from these minority backgrounds who are coming in from India, they're experiencing this every day, except they've got credit card debt, you know, their families are like, you know, you can't do this, be in this industry anyway. And they're like, no, I'm going to try and defy this. And when they come here, they just get a glass ceiling. I don't know if it's responsibility or something. I just kind of really, really want to change it, the whole system for everyone else so that everyone can get access and feel equality and feel like they can walk into a room and get what they deserve without having all of these barriers put on them, which still exist today. I was going to ask about your kind of biggest influences that are the reason that you do have that um, that resilience. So um, this is another deep story. So, you know, the biggest influence I've had and the people that inspire me are not from the present. They're from the past. So it's like the strength of my ancestors who were blackbirded in the 1800s. So blackbirding is the act of coercing someone or 
kidnapping them. Well, my great-grand was just kidnapped. And then they were transported by ship to Oceania and forced to work on sugarcane plantations. Who, who were they kidnapped by? The British. Oh, the, yeah. You know, the, the British. They did, they did that. <laughs> yeah, they did. They definitely did that. Yep. Um, yeah, so anyway, they were transported. So my family were blackbird in the 1800s and they were transported by ship to Oceania and forced to work on sugarcane plantations. They were unpaid and unfortunately the plantations that they were sent to were actually founded by members of the KKK who had just come in from Texas. So the human rights abuses, torture and atrocities were like absolutely immense in these towns. And like my great grandmother told my mom of something that she saw and she said she used to see um women chained to trees and the the British would whip them till they bled if they did something wrong just that being part of the memory of someone who existed in like my timeline is quite amazing mm. but her mother my great great grandmother her name was Fulwati. She never saw her husband and three children again. So she was potato sacked in a market in Calcutta and put on the ship. She had like so much courage. Like she built her own house. She carried powdered chili actually as an early pepper spray, which she used on plantation owners who got too frisky with the other women. So she would kind of go around and like protect all the other women with these like chili powder like bombs, I guess, which I think is kind of incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Um, Innovative too. Definitely. And I think part of her fire like courses through me, like she led a revolt with 5,000 other Indian women against the British in the Pacific to secure the freedom of our people from indentured servitude. And like, even though she was pretty hardcore, she was always laughing and smiling. So I, I guess one of the things I've learned from her is there's this really amazing quote by Viktor Frankl and it's, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And, you know, basically that means to me, even when everything you have has been taken away from you, you still have the choice of your attitude. And I think this is where my unending stream of optimism, which goes into delusion, comes from. Because even when people tell me the odds of something are 1%, I always say, let's try it. Because we haven't got anything to lose. And I think... That's where that strength kind of like comes from and that desire to help my community. Yeah, it's it's in, it's in your bones. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, my gosh, she sounds incredible. Um, and I think, and, and that's, I mean, it's easier said than done a lot of the time to kind of hold on to that positive attitude. Mm. Um, and it's even harder when somebody's telling you to do that. But I think once you've, if you have that and you have the spirit of somebody like that in your, um, in your family, then... That's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a driving force. Um, and actually I was, I was going to say as well, cause you've got such a significant social media following. How, what's your personal relationship like with social media? Um, and how, how do you use it for yourself and for good? I'm always the first one to reach out and try and connect with people. We all have the same stories, but we, we find this level of solidarity. Just be like, oh yeah, that same thing happened to me. And like that same thing happened to me. And what I've been doing actually with all these stories is combining them together along with people who work in fashion, not just models, but creative directors and editors and directors of um, photography and things like that. And combining all of these stories together into a documentary of kind of all the struggles that everyone has had, but also all the amazing work that each of these people are doing within their communities to try and push for more change. Because I think... 
Um, one of the things I personally find is that each one of us is really powerful and we can kind of like change the world. Even if for one person, that's kind of an amazing thing. So, But I think though, there is such a lot of power in numbers. Yeah. So the bigger the network you create, the louder that voice is Definitely. And, and people can't ignore it. I think what's historically happened with like the South Asian space is like people have divided themselves like, oh, we're Indian, we're Pakistani, we're Bangladeshi, we're um, first generation, we're this, this is. And I think what's really amazing, which is happening now is everyone just is kind of like combining together mm. away from all these borders and all of these like artificial kind of um, identities and kind of creating feel, one huge I don't know powerful identity yeah because I feel that that those boundaries were put in place not by South Asians of course that's other people trying to give an identity to somebody to be like that I understand what that yes. is um so I think it's really amazing to bring that back to yeah back together yeah um and because well, you mentioned BLM earlier and you know, to the fact that it got to that, you know, everyone's got so, got so angry because of what was happening and it reached that crescendo um, that you know, it should never have had to get to that point mm. for people to actually pay attention. And I think it's incredible what you're doing in terms of... I think of, that organised community that yeah. created BLM was what was the most powerful part of yeah. it. And but how awful it needed that catalyst for that exactly. to happen and people to to pay attention. And I think that just shows how much strength there is in numbers to like even push all of those systemic barriers in, you know, such a small space of time. And I'm not saying that those barriers are now non-existent, but I'm saying it just pushed everything so far forward to what it would have had that not have happened. And I think that strength in numbers is what, can really be used to push for change and change systems. Because when it's one person screaming, most people are like, that girl's crazy, you know? So it's sort of like- so It's um, easier to shut down one person. Exactly. Yeah. And it, I, I think for me, a lot of the time was I often, like when I first started talking about a lot of this, like South Asian issues, it did feel like I was an island. So a lot of the time I felt like I was the only one talking about it. And it was very easy for people to silence me. Like they could say like one negative comment and I'd be like, crying or something like that you know but now it's kind of like created this level of resilience within me where I'm like no actually this is not just about me it's for the next generation the generation after and that generation so that's why we have to keep doing it um yeah and I mean you've already become such a significant voice obviously in in several fields listening to you it sounds like it's almost happened quite organically it totally has. Like, I've never, like, really, like, gone out of my way, but, like, you know, t today I'm going to go and do this. It's been more like, hey, I'm really interested in this. Let's do this. Or, like, and from there I'll be doing something and someone else will be like, hey, why don't you try this? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can combine those two together. And I think it's always, like, this way of thinking where I've kind of always thought outside of the box. It's been quite organic the way I've combined sustainability with social impact. Because also I think it's the ecology and the science and the human science. And I think that's where it all kind of combines together. Do you plan in terms of how you're going to grow it now and what the steps for the future are? Or are you still thinking basically day to day? So all I know I want to do is I want to keep growing the entrepreneurial side of things, really pushing for social impact that's quite tangible and really trying to push for that and change the system as much as I can. Have you been back to your like home community? And how oh, do you, yeah. How do you feel when you go back So now? actually, I mean, I, this is like obviously another part of my identity, which I do as well. So 
right after I um, had the opportunity to go to university, something I always did by giving back was actually, I'd always go back and give motivational talks. So I always have gone back to my old high school to motivate the students, to let them know that there is a space for your university. When you're a disadvantaged student and you're so used to being told basically, I don't know if I can even say this, but you're a piece of shit, is um, that you kind of internalize that. And so you don't think you can... And were you hearing that limited. in the in the community or so in the So it's in the community well? and in the community from other people who went to like private schools and okay. other schools and that kind of thing. A lot of people are used to being told, you know, you're not very good. You're not going to amount to very much. And sometimes all you need is that tiny little bit of encouragement to just push a little harder and go a little further. So that's something I always did. I always go back and do motivational talks. I've been a mentor for a lot of students at university and in high school. Yeah, I don't know, I just really enjoy it because you know, that kind of sense of achievement you see in their face when they realize that they can actually do anything. When that moment hits them and they're like, wow, I could do this. I think that's kind of like what I what I do it for. Like just that moment. Cause you know, that's like the moment the whole life is just about to change. So. Yeah, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, yeah and there's yeah, opportunities. Definitely. And even though obviously this is about um, rule breaking, is there a rule that you that you live by? Is there any, is there one rule that you would never break? My rule is that there are no rules, right? So anything and everything's possible. But then like, I don't believe in denigrating other people to get ahead. And I think that's at my core. Like even whenever I describe any of these things that I've described, I don't believe in targeting people. I don't believe in saying, you know, you are wrong individually, because I know it's not that person, it's the system. Mm. And finally, and I think you may have answered this already, who is the rule breaker or person challenging the status quo who has inspired you the most? I definitely my great, great nun. Like I think just a woman in 1920 leading a revolt with 5,000 other women is pretty impressive. Like I just, honestly, that's kind of, I didn't know anyone to this day who is as impressive as her. No, a superwoman. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, like her great great granddaughter. <laughs> Hopefully, I hope I can <laughs> even step in one of her like shoes. But, uh. um, well, you're well on your way, I think. <laughs> um, but thank you very much. That was amazing. That's like, the, the perfect end to my day. Thank you. Um, thank I thought you I could, for having I, me. I could, I could happily sit here and talk to you all night. <laughs> The Rule Breakers was brought to you by Netaporte and Chalk and Blade. Hosted by Netaporte's content director Alice Casely Hayford and fashion director Kay Barron. The team at Netaporte was Katie Barrington as the senior editor, with casting by Annabelle Brog and Olivia Wakefield, and coordination by Erin Shanahan. The producer at Chalk and Blade was Fatuma Keira, and the managing producer was Laura Hyde. Original music by Alexis Adamora, and the series was mixed by Nasson De Silva. Enter the code RULEBREAKERS at the checkout for 10% off your first Net-A-Porte order. T's and C's and exclusions apply. To make sure you hear all the episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information, go to netaporte.com. <laughs>